Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Weekly Haftorah. I hope everybody had a wonderful Pesach and that you're all feeling very energized and inspired after Chag. So this week we're getting things back to a normal schedule and we're picking up with our normal Parsha Sashavua. This week is Parsha Shmini. And in this Parsha, we see some of the only narrative material in all of Sefer Vayikra. So this week's Parsha opens on the eighth day of the Miluim. We discussed this period briefly in weeks past, but just to review, the Miluim were a set of sacrifices that were used to inaugurate the Mishkan after its building was completed. So for most of this, Moshe Rabbeinu is doing most of the sacrifices, but on this, the eighth and final day, Aaron Kohen is the one offering up sacrifices in preparation for the Divine Presence, or what we'll call the Shekhinah, to actually descend onto the Mishkan and for it to fully come into working order. So throughout this process, Aaron is completing the sacrifices. He gives the priestly blessing to all of the Jews. And the Parsha describes that the Shekhinah actually visibly descends onto the Mishkan. All the people can see it. At this point in the Parsha, Aaron's two sons, his two oldest sons, their names were Nadav and Abihu, actually decide of their own accord that they're going to bring an unsolicited Ketoras. So the Ketoras was a type of offering. It's a mixture of incense, which the Mepharshim describe as the most um, beloved sacrifice to Hashem. But as we see throughout the Chumash, it's actually also one of the most dangerous sacrifices. So Pasuk Aleph of Perak Yod Aleph says, Nadav and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took up their fire pans. So this is a type of tool that would be used to give the Ketoras. It was a, a tool that was used in the service in the Mishkan. Pasuk finishes, It says they put fire in them and they put on them incense and brought it before Hashem. They brought a foreign fire that he did not command them. The next Pasuk, Pasuk base, tells us, A fire went out before Hashem and consumed them, and they died before Hashem. I'll I'll note here that there's very strong evidence that Aaron's sons were actually drunk when this episode happened. On Pasuk base, Rashi brings a Gemara, which explains why because immediately afterwards in Pesukim um, Chet and Tet, Pesukim 8 and 9, there is a prohibition against entering the Mishkan in a drunken state. So the Gemara that Rashi brings explains that these two items are placed side by side to actually show a causal relationship that one prompted the other. So the next Pasuk, Pasuk Gimel, tells us that Aaron was silent upon the death of his sons. There is a lot to be said about this fact. Um, there's lots that we could go into here, but I'll I'll leave that to a parshish here. Um, this is, however, this incident is the common thread with the Haftorah. So lock this in your mind, save it for later, and we'll we'll return and talk more about it. So from here in the Parsha, Moshe slowly hands off the Avodah, the service in the Mishkan, to Aaron and the rest of his remaining sons. And the rest of the Parsha actually pivots to a different topic. In the sixth Aliyah, we begin to get all of the foundational laws for Kashras. So Hashem tells us how to identify kosher animals and fish and lists kosher birds. 
actually important. Um, there, there's no simanim. There's no signs of a kosher bird in the Torah like there are for animals and fish. Um, rather, in this parsha, we see a long list of of birds, and from those, we kind of infer out what a kosher bird is. And that's why some birds, like turkeys, there are actually debates. Um, that are alive and well over which birds are kosher, still down to today. Um, next in the Parsha, Hashem tells us about um, some of the laws of impurity that can be contracted by touching a dead non-kosher animal um, and what we call a sheretz, so an amphibian, an insect, something like that. Um, impurity, he says, can also be contracted through a kosher animal, a dead kosher animal that was not shechted. And the Parsha closes with the reminder that keeping these laws, keeping these laws of kashrut, are a constant reminder of our special relationship with Hashem, who brought us out of Egypt. Again, the theme continues all throughout Chumash and all throughout Tanakh. So this week's half Torah, changing gears now, comes from Sefer Shmuel Base, the second book of Samuel. Here we're in Perak Vav and Zion, chapters 6 and 7. And as always, before we start the summary, we'll situate Haftorah in history so we know what we're working with. So Sefer Shmuel, like Sefer Malachim, was actually broken into two Sfarim by outside non-Jewish sources. We only use the names Aleph and Base for ease of reference, but really as we're studying this, we should look at it all as one long Sefer. So chronologically speaking, the events in this week's Haftorah don't take place so far away from the end of the Chumash. So in order to, to help us figure out where we are in history, I'm going to sort of review um, starting right after the Chumash. So Sefer Shmuel commences right after Sefer Shoftim ends. And the era of the Shoftim lasted about 355 years from the time the Jews entered the land of Israel until the time the first king is anointed. This era is characterized in three short phrases by political instability, tribal factioning, and an ongoing cycle of sinning and repentance. And throughout this period, there's a very rapid succession of changing leaders, some of whom were more successful than others, and the length of the time that a given shofet was in charge was usually directly correlated to the number of sins that the Jews did under their charge. So although there were times of prosperity, the nation, the Jewish nation knew that we needed centralized leadership to function. There's actually a certain pasuk that appears several times in the end of Sefer Shmuel that essentially says, this is what happens when there's no centralized leadership. Each person does what's moral in their own eyes. And um, certain events like Pilegesh Begiva, like Pesel Micha, if you're familiar with the end of Sefer Shmuel, um, really prove that that people have more of an allegiance to their tribe, to their faction, than they do to the nation as a whole. And when the nation is operating like this, there's no room for an ultimate morality. There, nobody can agree on simply carrying out the morality that's outlined in the Torah. So this reproves the need for centralized leadership. So after the cycle has been going on for so long, the Jews finally decide that they can't continue without a king, and Shmuel Hanavi becomes the prophet. He eventually anoints King Shaul, and Shaul served for two years. He essentially throughout his rule repeatedly proves that he's not right for this job. Um, you can check out this year a few weeks back from Parsha Zachor for a more at-length discussion of why, um, but there was one very critical battle where Shmuel, sorry, where Shaul um, proved he was unfit to carry the nation to the next stages of growth, um, namely completely ridding it of the foreign influences that were still in the land and beginning the building of the temple. So through that episode, Shmuel, 
The Navi revokes kingship from Shaul and identifies David ben Yishai as the next king. But in Perak Chaf He of Shmuel Aleph, Shmuel the Navi actually passes away before he can anoint David as king. So the elders of Israel eventually find David when he is in Hebron and they anoint him as king. One of the first things that David does as king is take Jerusalem, which at this point had still been occupied by the Jebusites, which were one of the nations that lived in Israel before we came in. So he takes Jerusalem, he takes the city from them, and he makes it the official capital of Israel. So this is where our Haftor this week opens. David's next mission was immediately to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, which would eventually become its final resting place. So until now, the Ark hadn't actually been in Jerusalem for several reasons. Earlier in Sefer Shmuel, in Shmuel Aleph, we see that the Plishtim, which were another one of the foreign nations living in Israel, they were actually one of them that gave us the most issues. The Plishtim had capture, captured the Ark and taken it from the Jews. They captured it and they, they took it to Ashdod, which is on the uh, west coast of modern day Israel, very close to Gaza. Um, for them there, it caused, it caused many, many problems. So they gave it back to the Jews who kept it at Beit Shemesh. It was eventually transferred to Kiryat Yearim, which is modern-day Telstone, and it was then moved to Jerusalem by David, as we'll see in the Haftor this week. So in the beginning of Perak Vav, David is gathering the choicest, strongest men of Israel, and he begins moving the Ark from Kiryat Yearim to Yerushalayim. The, Le- the Levites are the ones that are immediately responsible for carrying the Ark. So as the procession is beginning towards Yerushalayim, everything's going fine. The people are rejoicing, they're singing, they're dancing, they're playing instruments. Everything's wonderful, everybody's celebrating. Until in Pasuk Vav of Perak Vav, we see it says, Vayvo ad gora nachon vayishlach uza el aron elokim vayechaz bo kishamtu Habakar. So this Pasuk says that when they come to the threshing floor that's owned by someone named Nachon, a man named Uzzah, um, he reached out to the Ark of Hashem and he grabbed it because the oxen had dislodged it. So we see um, the oxen were pulling a cart that the, that the Ark was being carried on and it looked as if one of them had diverted and it was going to cause the Ark to, to fall over. So one of the members of the procession this man named Uzzah, he, he thinks the ark's going to fall over. So, of course, he, he sticks his hand out to try and keep it from slipping. It seems pretty benign, this act. It seems just like normal common sense. But let's take a look at Pasuk Zion. Pasuk Zion says, Vayichar af Hashem be'uzah, vayaku sham ha'elokim al hashal vayamas sham im aron ha'elokim. This Pasuk says that Hashem became angry with Uzzah and he struck him down there and Uzzah died by the Ark of Hashem. So, ladies, as part of the narrative, the reason our Haftor and Parsha are connected this week. So, again, lock this in your head and we're going to return it. We'll return to it later in this year to tie things together. So, Haftor continues. After this incident, David decides to divert the Ark and put the mission to rest for three months. After those three months... It's sitting at the home of a man named Oved Edom, and who is himself a levy, and the procession resumes. Um, Pasuk Tesvav says, um, It says that um, David and all of the house of Israel brought the ark up with loud, joyous songs and sounds of the shofar. They brought it into Jerusalem. So the text also describes that 
every six Amos that the Ark would travel, so every six footsteps, David HaMelech would actually make two sacrifices to Hashem. So this is showing us how truly of a momentous occasion this is, that the Ark is finally coming home. So on the way into Jerusalem, Michal, who is David's one of David's wives, takes a look out the window and sees David leaping around and dancing before the Ark, and she becomes very embarrassed by him. When he comes home, Michal gives David quite a bit of rebuke and tells him that this is a slight on his honor because it's, a, it's an embarrassment to their house. This, this seems funny to us now because we all know from experience that no such thing is true. In these instances, it's a mitzvah to dance and to celebrate on an occasion like this. We think even the biggest, most important rabbis, you see them dancing like crazy at weddings and it's, it's a mitzvah. It's, it's a good thing. And, and this is essentially what, what David tells to Michal. He explains to her why she's wrong. He explains why it's this behavior is a merit for him. It's an element of his character that made him fit to be king over Israel. So in the last Pasuk of Perak Tesvav tells us, sorry, Perak Vav tells us that For this, Michal did not merit to have another child for the rest of her life. Haftar finishes off in Perak Zion, in which David HaMelech expresses a yearning to Nasan, who's the Navi at the, the time, that he wants to build Hashem the base of Mikdash. He says the very famous words in, in Pasuk base of Perak Zion, essentially that... Um, he, he said to the Navi, see, I'm, I'm living in a house that's made out of cedar, but the, the Ark of Hashem is sitting out in the middle of the public. He, he's expressing this idea that how can I possibly be comfortable here living in my house when Hashem doesn't have a house? He's, he's sitting outside in the cold. Um, remember that for almost 450 years from the time of the Exodus to this moment, Hashem has dwelled over the Mishkan and over the Aron and hasn't had a permanent a permanent place. So Nasan says to David, whatever's on your heart, you should go and do, ki Hashem imach, because Hashem is with you. And that night, Hashem actually sends another nevuah to Nasan, which essentially overrules him. Hashem tells Nasan to tell David that, although it's a nice gesture, I never requested a base of Mikdash, that's why I don't have one. He tells Nasan that at this point, it's not David's tough kid, it's not his mission, rather, Hashem says, I'm going to establish David's progeny as an enduring monarchy, and they will merit to complete this project. And this is, of course, a reference to Shlomo HaMelech, David's son. The Haftor ends with Hashem assuring him that um, his compassion will stay with the Davidic line and that this will be carried out, that it's a, it's a full promise that he'll keep. So that's where Haftor ends us off. Sorry, that took a while. It was a, a long one this week. So, um, Let's take a look what there is to be learned from these parallel stories of Nadav and Abihu, our own sons, and Uzzah, the man who stuck his hand out to catch the ark on the way to Yerushalayim. So when I heard these stories, I immediately felt like the common thread between both of them was is, can be stripped down to it's a warning of the danger of overstepping one's known role. So Nadav and Avihu overstepped their role by offering up a korban to Hashem that he didn't command them, most likely while drunk. Um, Uzzah and the Haftorah oversteps by one, thinking that the Ark would fall, despite the supervision of all the Levium that were around it, and two, by touching the Ark. Such an act is actually forbidden to anyone who's not of the priestly group, and Uzzah didn't fit that bill, so he wasn't allowed to touch the, the Ark at all. Both of these acts were probably well-intentioned. I don't think either of them were, were malicious that they intended to do this, but Nadav and Avihu wanted to bring something special to Hashem. Uzzah wanted to protect the Aron, or the Ark, but the underlying presumptions that led to this breach of roles were very dangerous. Both parties 
breach the rule that Hashem had specifically set out for them. Nadav and Avihu were present for the last few parshios, just like we were. They know that there's a very precise order of operations that has to take place within the Mishkan, and they transgress that order. Uzzah was part of a society that knew full well that the Levim were in charge of manning and carrying the Ark, that this is their specific task. He, too, transgressed his role when he stuck his hand out. I don't think either of these stories are here to tell us that if you step out of line, Hashem's going to zap you. Chas v'shalom. That's not the point of Tanakh. Even though that's what it might look like, we aren't meant to be scared of the quote-unquote wrath of God. That's, that's, not, that's not the point over here. We are, however, meant to have an appreciation that these forces that affected Nadav and Avihu and that affected Uzzah are still at work, even within Jewish society thousands of years later. Um, this made me think of the sort of breakdown in, in gender roles that, that we're seeing that's even permeating into Jewish society. And I wanted to talk a bit about that off of this. Um, there's still societal forces at work that are seeking to disrupt our very time-tested role structure that outlines men handle these parts of Jewish life and women handle these parts. In almost every area of Jewish society today, especially in America and even in Orthodox communities, a certain, I think, egalitarian push is developing and certain ideas from outside of the Jewish world are seeping in to our communities. And we see that men and women alike are presenting a desire for women to be rabbis, women to have more and more influence over halachic decisions, and even in some places to take on men's mitzvahs like laying tefillin. Oddly enough, the same diversion of roles is not something that we see by men. We don't see men clamoring to have access to our mitzvahs. We don't see men trying to light the Shabbos candles instead. We don't see men trying to, to take the mitzvah of mikvah away from us. And the way this phenomenon looks in the real world, I think, is proof that these same drives to blur roles that were present in Tanakh are still present today. Uh, again, these pursuits, I think, are well-intentioned, no doubt, but they also disrupt our time-tested roles that Hashem has set out for us. We have our own unique role in Jewish society, and that is, hands down, better celebrated than disdained. Unlike the figures in this week's readings, we have a more perspective to look inward, to acknowledge that the system as it exists is designed with our strengths, our abilities, and our best interests in mind. The roles we have as women, I think we should look at them like superpowers, not like something that holds us back. Even before we get married, we help to oversee the kashras of our homes. We set the atmosphere of learning in shalom wherever we live. We cultivate the next generation of Torah Jews. And yes, we too learn Torah. Remember, every day uh, we say, V'tivanu lasok b'divrei Torah. We say the blessing, Hashem, you commanded us to be involved in Torah. And that's exactly what we're doing right now. These actions aren't just something nice that Hashem left to us to make us feel important. It's not just, you know, he didn't want us to feel bad. They're things that we were given because we're needed to do them. They're given to us because men can't do them in the same way that we can. And these roles of ours are facilitated and reinforced by halacha, and perhaps more importantly, by the particular strengths that Hashem gave us that are unique to us as women. And ultimately, we should always look at our mitzvahs that are specific to us as precious gifts, as precious gems, as a light into our lives, like the Pasuk from Mishle says, in our mitzvah Torah, or um, mitzvahs are candles and Torah is light, and it, it illuminates our entire lives. And I hope this week's readings prompted you sort of in the same way I did, and to think about these timely issues, and um, we should all be mechazek in our specific roles. We should be confident of our special abilities as women, and we should all feel satisfied and fulfilled 
and knowing that we have unique contributions to make as from women. So um, again, let me know as always what you thought of this week's discussion. I'm always open to comments, feedback, questions, you name it. And uh, I look forward to seeing you guys next week. Have a wonderful Shabbos.